Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December 12, 2016. That means it's 12-12-16 as we're in the middle of the 12 days of Christmas, I guess. Anyway, um, what are we going to talk about today? Well, it is a listener feed feedback show. It's a Monday show, so that means this is all... Responses, everything except the lead thing we'll talk about today. Responses to, uh, people emailing me at jack at the survival podcast.com. Yes, if you want to, uh, submit content or a question or anything like that for a show like this, just email me at jack at the survival podcast.com. Put TSPC in the subject line. On that note, before I tell you what we're going to talk about, if you emailed me since Thursday, so Thursday to today, you haven't heard back from me yet, <clears throat> assume that something has gone drastically wrong. And uh, somehow I missed you in my travels while I was away. And uh, please re-email me. I am not the kind of person that doesn't respond to emails. I don't respond to all of them, but if it's something you would have expected a response from, re-email me if you emailed me originally between Thursday and this morning. Anyway, um, I am back from my uh, my venture to East Texas uh, into the Whitetail Woodlands, and I was successful and brought home a really nice doe. Uh, meat for the freezer, so I will talk a little bit about that, mostly about the performance of the cartridge in, in, in question. I will talk about, uh, answer a question on making herbal teas, and I'm just going to say right now, it's not complicated, just do it. But uh, I'll try to answer the question as best I can. It seems to be causing some people some uh, confusion, and it really shouldn't. It's an easy thing. Um, I have a question on when you take something you would call a side hustle into the world of the legitimate business. We'll talk about that and how we make a decision like that. We have a, a person postulating, what if we created a government today? Now, usually governments go wrong no matter what, but it's an interesting idea. Like, So most of the governments that we have existed in some form or another 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 years ago um, or more. These governments that we have today are, even though they the government uses the new technology to enforce its will, The, use tech, the new technologies are not usable by the individuals being governed. In other words, the, the government was not created with the technology in mind. Rather, the government is leveraging the technology that's available. Those are two different things. So if we had the chance to create a new government today, what would it look like considering the reality of 2016? Just a guy with a YouTube video. I'll actually probably play the audio for you of it, and I'll give you some thoughts on it. <clears throat> I don't completely agree with his assessment as what, what would be done or if it's even feasible, but it's interesting to ask that question because it then makes us question him, well, do we have to have things the way that they are? Do we have to have so much power in the hands of government? Uh, we have a new, simple, cool, easy way to meet your new neighbors. I, so simple. I don't know why I didn't think of it myself, but I certainly did not. Thoughts on a concept like the prep failure of the week? Maybe that'll make sense when I get to it. Uh, I have I have a question on how to reduce your tax footprint. If you're specifically, though, a W-2 employee, not a, a, a business owner or a 1099 contractor. And uses for wire coat hangers. Someone has them in abundance and wants to know what they can do with them. I have some thoughts on that. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, if you're like me, you want the best quality water for yourself and your family. This is why I've used a Berkey water filter for over six years in my own home. 
But if you're going to get a Berkey or parts for one you already have, you should deal with the best. And that's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. There's only one official Berkey Guy, and you can only find him at his website at directive21.com. Again, directive, the number is 21 and a dot com. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at KnifeKits.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1913 because the episode is 1913. I like to refer to 1913 as the year freedom died. I really do. Anyway, and we're going to be talking about why I feel that way with one of the segments today. We have, it's a doozy of a car. We have the sudden suicide of diesel. We have limitless government. We have limitless banking and notable births. Richard Nixon, Vice President, President of the United States. Jimmy Hoffa, union leader who will go missing, very likely sleeping with the fishes. Rosa Parks, a black woman who forces a legal case by refusing to give her seat up on a bus to a white man. And don't forget, Vince Lombardi, Bear Bryant, and Jesse Owens. Owens' Olympic feats are a subtext of the movie The Book Thief. In other news, Muhammad Gandhi is arrested this year. Uh, H. Geiger introduces the Geiger counter this year. And Henry Ford brings the assembling line to factory production. He's not the first, but everyone is now scrambling to keep up. I'm going to read Limitless Government. Well, here we are. Woodrow Wilson has been elected President of the United States on a platform of export domestic management, expert domestic management. No foreign entanglements are on the horizon, so it is all about fixing the USA. Yes, we can. The old Constitution was good enough for the 18th century, man. Read is morons. But in the 19th century, we need something modern. We can trust the voters to get it right. We can trust the government based on the science run by experts. Socialism light, so to speak. The Constitution limits the power of taxation, but with the ratification of the 16th Amendment, our limits are gone. The feds can tax the income of individual citizens mercilessly. Oh, I mean fairly. After all, if you are making too much money, you should be sharing that extra income with your fellow citizens, whether you like it or not. The 17th Amendment is also ratified this year. It allows senators to be elected by the people rather than to be beholden to the state legislature or the governor. Now we have a second house of representatives promising bread and circuses to the masses. Oh, I mean looking out for the little guy. Sure, Wilbur. Anything else? Yes, the U.S. Federal Reserve System is established. I know there was a reason to fear God's justice. Up next, prohibition. Alex Shrug's take on this. To be fair, these guys really believe that it's the right course for the future of humanity. The fact that we know these boneheaded big bigots have just placed our heads into the jaws of a lion should not blind us to that fact. What worries me today are the measures we are implementing today that we are certain are correct and our children's children will curse us for. Without granting forgiveness, we cannot express forgiveness in return. With that in mind, may my children forgive me as I have forgiven my father and my father's father. I reserve the right to criticize my father's actions while understanding that every man sets out to do what he thinks is right or at least reasonable. My taste a little different. Um, I decided to read this one because it hits the Federal Reserve, even though the next segment's on the Federal Reserve. And these three things, these three things all occurring in 1913 are the greatest strikes against liberty in the United States that have occurred since the founding of the United States up to current day. Nothing stands with these three. The first and foremost was the ability in the 16th Amendment of the United States Constitution to tax 
the individual labor of a citizen. You might as well have just never even bothered with the American Revolution once that happened. It, it, it is something that because we have grown up with it just being, well, you pay your taxes, you pay your taxes, you pay your taxes, you pay your taxes. We don't even realize what a horrific thing it is to actually say to a person that when you go out and sweat and bleed and sell your body and your mind and your time, when you receive the fruits of that, someone else is entitled to a portion thereof. Before you spend it, before you do it, just in the very act of, 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 of earning it, it's taxable. It's sinful, in my view. There should be no income tax. We can debate whether we need government. We can debate whether there should be some sort of tax to fund government. You'll even hear me say that you know, if you want a government to do certain things later today, then there has to be some sort of a tax revenue base. There has to be. You can't just have money just constantly being created and only going one way out of government if you want government to do certain things. I don't want them to do those things, but if you want it, then that has to happen. So we can say that you know there needs to be some source of revenue for government if you're to have government. But taxing the effort of the individual is, is repulsive. And, and again, the only reason you might think that that's an outlandish statement is you've never known a world where it wasn't true. I want you to just for a minute think to yourself, right now, there is no income tax. No income tax exists. One way or another, we're making it work. You are able to go out and work and keep all your money. You only pay taxes when you do something with it, some sort of consumption tax or, or excise tax or fees and permits. You don't pay any tax on your labor. And somebody comes up with the idea that you should. You'd feel differently. You'd feel the way I do because you wouldn't have the normalcy bias associative with it that you do simply because you were born into it. The next one is, and this is the one that most people in, in the world don't get, They just don't get it. They don't get how bad this was. When we stopped electing our senators through our legislatures in our state houses, we, create, we, we, we basically destroyed the concept of the system our founders gave us. And the reason that that's the case, there's a reason that senators were appointed to a six-year term. And there was a reason that uh, your representatives were elected to two-year terms. Because one would be beholden to the people directly. And of course, they will promise them breads and circuses. But the other would be beholden to the legislature, which were also directly elected by the citizens of the individual states. Thereby giving the states a greater voice and a bigger seat at the table. There's also something that people don't really understand. Yeah, you can recall elected officials today with recall elections in certain situations, and it's difficult. Prior to this, let's say that the state of Georgia sent their two senators to Washington and were, you know, given certain directions and certain agreements were made, and they were elected by. And, and those two senators decided to start doing some shit. The people of Georgia really disgusted, but they had four years, or one of them did. You know, they had four. He had four years left as a senator. The Georgia legislature could recall their senator directly and replace them. Now, they had to have a reason. Actually, it was governed under the state's individual constitution. But what was sold to the people is you have greater say actually gave you less of a say. So, because go get a meeting with your state senator. Go ahead. You can do it. It's not that hard. 
It really isn't. Try to get a meeting with your uh, your state congressional representative. It's not that hard. Go try to get a meeting, a face-to-face sit-down meeting for 10 minutes with your federal senator, either one of the two in your state. Let me know how it works out for you. Let me know how it works out for you. You can get the ear of your state legislators. You really can. Not a lot, but you can get something. And that meant that we had greater influence as individuals if we were active in that situation. And the last one, the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve took the power of monetary creation from the government. And you can say whatever you want. Well, the founders, the founders, silver and blah, 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 gold. No, I'll tell you what the founders did. They gave the power of monetary creation to the government. And the government gave it to the bankers. And the bankers pretended they didn't really want it, but they would do it because it was the right thing. And we all believed it. And 1913, the day that liberty died. That's my take by Jack Spierko. So, on happier note, so I, I did get to go hunting twice this year. Uh, I really enjoyed myself more this last hunt. Uh, I was in the company of some really good, close friends that I, I knew well. I uh, met some new friends. That's always nice. Um, and had more of kind of the hunt camp experience. So that, that was nice. I was also sick as crap when I went up to Missouri and I shouldn't have went. I, I was still congested. You guys know the way my voice sounded right before I got out of here. And, uh, you're out on a deer stand, you're freezing your ass off. That's all good and well. And you start, you're coughing every five minutes. You're not going to see a deer. Uh, so I didn't have to deal with that this time. So it, it worked out. It was a better trip. Um, and, uh, was able to shoot this deer actually the first night we got there. Um, got there around, I think, two in the afternoon and decided, hey, we might as well, we're here, we might as well get out in a stand. And, uh, got a really late, uh, almost past shooting light. In fact, it was, uh, it wasn't really that low light as a whole, but on my stand, the way the trees were and all, I really lost light faster than you would have if you had more of an open field. And, uh, it was one more minute, I would not have pulled the trigger. I would not have been sure of my shot. The shot was right about 100 yards. It's my new little 77357 Ruger. And uh, I would like to point out that I am no longer interested in anybody's assessment as to whether or not the 357 is uh, an effective uh, white-tailed deer cartridge. Uh, I hit her on the, the fore shoulder and uh, broke the shoulder through and through both lungs, through the outside rib cage, through the other shoulder. Uh, we did not find the slug. It did not exit the far hide. We didn't find it under the hide. My guess, and I still haven't taken the uh, shoulders apart yet, they're pretty dead gone bloodshot, but my guess is they're that that's in there somewhere. And I'd be interested to see that 158 grain flat point if I can find it. Um, it did a tremendous amount of damage uh, to what it hit, but yet it didn't like, you know, like turn the whole thing into jelly like, you know, the Magnum Maniacs want to do. And I, I just wanted to kind of bring this up because I think that I'm not saying everybody should go out and start shooting deer with a 357. And you're absolutely limiting yourself. The, the place we were at, there were places I could see, and not just in optimum situation, I mean from stands, I could see 200, 300, 400 yards. And I, I wouldn't take a 200-yard shot, let alone a 400-yard shot with a 357 Magnum. I would take a 300, 350-yard, 400-yard shot with a 308 in the right conditions. So you, you, it is a limiting factor. But... When we, if we look at gun magazines today, every other advertisement is some, you know, souped up super bullet 
with like a perfect gorgeous mushroom so that we can kill a white-tailed deer, you know, or 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 a pronghorn antelope, the animals that weigh a couple hundred pounds or less, you know. And our grandparents You know, shot these same animals with 30-30s, with, you know, green and yellow box Remington ammo. They have not gotten, you know, they have not turned into super deer. They don't wear flak jackets now. And I think that there's a, a case for maybe not trying to always be shooting like these these hopped-up super magnums. You know, the, the 30-06 is plenty of gun for anything in North America. But it also opens up a whole new world of of fun and learning and being able to say, well, maybe maybe you should consider something like a .357 Magnum carbine or a .44 Magnum carbine, which is a hell of a lot more gun, um, and take certain considerations. I mean, part of the way I look at it is I haven't shot a lot of deer over you know 200 yards. I've shot a couple, a little bit over 200 yards. I've shot most of my deer 100 yards or less, and I've probably shot half of the deer I've shot at somewhere between 10 yards, this is including bow shots, right, and rifle, all of it mixed together, but the majority somewhere between 10 yards and 50 yards. And part of me feels like as a hunter, if I can just see a deer in a field 600 yards away, and, and I have the right equipment, and I can set up and make that shot, that deer never even knew, I could be out there waving at the deer, and it looks at me, and it doesn't care because it doesn't feel any danger. I don't know that I really, as a hunter, have earned that deer. It's a hell of a shot. It's impressive. You know, and I, I don't, defo- you know, don't put down anybody that, that that enjoys that types of long range marksmanship. But then that's what you're doing. You're you're using the skill is long range marksmanship that's being applied to killing a deer versus hunting, which means that you actually have to get within a certain distance of the animal uh, in one way or another to take it. So I, I think it's kind of a cool thing to at least consider. I will say I'm loving this little Ruger uh, 357. Um, it, it is just a fantastic gun. The fact that Ruger has discontinued it makes no sense at all, other than I'm sure it, you know, it all comes down to market forces, and if, the, if people aren't buying it, um, then they're not going to make it. I like it so much, I went on uh, Boyd's Gun Stocks today and uh, ordered a, uh, a custom stock for it because I thought it could be dressed up a little bit and be a little bit more functional than the, uh, the stock uh, that came with it. And uh, that wasn't too expensive. And if you guys have any guns out there that you kind of would like to maybe, you know, take up a notch without putting a lot of money into it, uh, Boyd's is a place to check out. I'm going to, after I receive my stock from them this time, see if I can use the customer service channel to dig in a little bit and see maybe I can pull a, uh, a MSB discount from Boyd's for you guys. Uh, they're a really great company, but they're one of those companies that are big enough. They're a little harder for me to get to a decision maker uh, in. So... I'll see what I can do there. But uh, that's just a little side note. Boyd's, Boyd's uh, Gun Stocks, B-O-Y-D-S, I believe is how it's spelled. Uh, I've got several stocks from them on mostly NEF Handy Rifles. They were one of the few people that did it. And you can get a really nice stock from them for somewhere between 100 and 200 bucks. With a lot of custom options as well if, you're, you know, if you want something more. I think they're best known for their you know, 1022 stocks, but they make them for you know, Ruger Model 70s. You name it, they probably make the stock for it. So just a little thing there, and, and just kind of consider the fact that maybe once in a while we don't need a 300 wind mag to shoot a freaking 120-pound white-tailed deer. We just don't. Uh, next up, I have a question from a member of the audience here, and it is on uh, the herbal teas that I make. 
And uh, here's the question. It says, Jack, I wondered if you might go into a little more detail on how you make your herbal teas. I've never made any herbal teas like this and really have no idea how to do it. I have already purchased one pound each of chamomile, lemon balm, lemongrass, peppermint, and spearmint. But when blending these, do you chop them up or grind them? You've mentioned a tea infuser and a French press. I don't either one. Can you make any recommendations? Thanks for all you do, Chris. Okay, so um, let's start out with do you do anything to them? No. And I'm not going to say that you wouldn't ever find any leaf or herb or something like that that you would uh, not grind or cut up or chop to a smaller size. But the, the truth is that if you look at teas, like if you're buying black tea, your traditional breakfast teas, your English teas, things like that, that are from the regular Camilla tea plant, the finer dusting, like little ground-up tea, is the cheap stuff. And the larger pieces, right, uh, those are actually more expensive because they're better quality. So we don't want dust when we're making tea. We want, you know, a, a sizable piece of leaf. So we don't want to crush them. So I guess that is one little bit of technique. I don't like to crush them. Now, the stuff that he mentioned he bought, the chamomile, the lemon balm, the lemongrass, peppermint, uh, that stuff's used in a lot of the teas that I make. Uh, so is spearmint. Uh, you can blend that any way that you want. But let's say you want to do a simple blend. You wanted to do um, two-part chamomile to one-part lemon balm to one-part peppermint. When I say one part, I mean just that one part by volume, not weight. That's how I do it anyway. I always blend my teas by volume because it's easier and it's faster. And if I think I put too much of something in there, I can just reduce it next time. And I can use anything. And what I generally use is a pretty big juice glass, like, you know, like a short, fat juice glass out of my cabinet. And I just go into the bag and I'll scoop two of those. And because I, I make a bunch at once, it's easier that way for me. Two, two of something, one of another, one of another into a bowl. And I want a bowl big enough that when I put all of those leaves in there, it's not full to the top. I want some space. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to go in and I'm going to mix it with my hands. And I'm gonna, I'm not gonna, like, I'm not kneading it, kneading it like dough, right? I'm going, put my fingers all the way down in, and I kind of bring my fingers up and let it sift through. Because I don't wanna, I don't wanna grind it. I don't wanna crush it. I don't wanna make a bunch of powder out of it. I wanna just keep it loosely mixed. And once I get it mixed, I take a ball jar and a canning funnel, which is made to go in a ball jar, and I start, you know, with a cup or hands or whatever, putting it into ball jars. And when I do tea, I usually end up with somewhere between two and four quart ball jars. Put a lid on them. I leave one out on the counter. That's the tea I'm drinking until that jar is empty. And I put the other jars away in the cabinet. And when that jar is empty that I have left out, I might go get the jar I made or a different variety or something like that. Once in a while, I'll pull out a different tea. But usually, I just drink a quart of tea until it's gone. And then I try a different variety or more of the same. And that's kind of my thing and what I do. And you can do it any way you want. But... I recommend that when you are blending in the beginning and you haven't tried something before and you think, well, I don't care what Jack says. I want to do something that's lots of spearmint, a little bit of chamomile, and some lemongrass. Sounds like a plan. Go for it. But don't make two quarts of it. Don't make four quarts of it. That's a lot. And you can put it together really easy, but like salt on food, you can put more, but it's hard to take it back. In fact, impossible. So what I recommend you do then is you get yourself a little little bowl, little pint jar, something like that, and make your parts something like teaspoons. 
So if you're going to do two chamomile, two teaspoons, and make up a little bit, and you'll probably get, you know, if you're doing three or four different herbs, you'll probably get enough to make a couple cups of tea. Well, if you drink the first one, you think, that tastes like ass, you could throw it away. Or if you think, boy, that could really use some more chamomile, as long as you know what you did, then just add one more part chamomile and try it again until you refine the mix that you like and then make large batches. So that's, that's everything that I do. There's nothing more to it than that. Now, can you make tea without an infuser or a French press? You can. It's kind of a pain in the ass, and I don't really see a good reason to do so. So I recommend you either get the infuser that I recommend, which is the, I think it's the Four Life Perfect Tea Infuser. I've used a lot of infusers. It is the perfect one. It is the best one, um, and it's less than 20 bucks, and you will never break it. Uh, the only way you'll ever have to buy another one is if you decide you want to or you lose it or maybe if you dropped it on the ground and started stomping on it as hard as you could, you might smash it flat. I'm sure if you ran your pickup truck over it, you'd need a new one. But day-to-day -day use in your kitchen, you could give this to your kid who would give it to your grandkid who would give it to your great-grandkid and there's no reason it would ever stop working. It's stainless steel and its entire traumatic experience is being dipped into hot water with leaves in it. Right? So that's, that's the minimum I, I recommend as, a, as you're going to drink tea a lot. I like a French press better because I can just make more tea. And uh, the way I use my French press, I, I've come up with most of my recipes, four tablespoons of tea in the French press, And I fill the French press up with hot water. Most French presses are around the same size. I have the, like the biggest standard size you can get. And then you put your plunger into it just about an inch, not all the way down. You don't want to plunge it right away. And then put the lid on it. This, this is why I like it uh, is a way of making tea. When you make tea and you put your herbs in the tea, a lot of the oils, the essential oils and herbs start going up in the steam. Well, if there's a lid up there, and I like the, the tea infuser I recommend has a lid too. They hit it, they congeal, they drop back down in. You don't lose the flavor. You don't lose the benefits of the essential oils. So that's how I make tea. If I, let's say I was uh, traveling and I was at somebody's house and they had a standard kitchen with standard kitchen stuff in it and um, they didn't have a tea infuser or a French press and I bought a jar of tea with me and forgot my, my, my infuser like a dummy, how would I make tea? What I would probably do is first I would look for a small strainer, like a you know, metal like spaghetti strainer, but like a little one that, fits, that would fit inside a, a, a small cup, or I mean a large cup, and I would pour hot water over it until it was soaking, and I would use it like an infuser, and I'd accept that a few little leaves are going to get in there, and okay, fine. And if that wasn't available, then I would take something like a small pot, I would boil water in it, And I would add my tea to it, and I would stir it, and I would pour it through a larger strainer. You know, you still need fine mesh. Both of those would work. Get an infuser if you're going to drink tea. I mean, just, okay, what you don't want. They have little tea infusers that look like a little bell, right? Or they look like, um, they look, they have like, they look like a round ball, and you squeezy thing like tongs, and a little round ball opens, and you pinch the tea in there and all. If you're drinking stronger, Teas that are like, you know, black teas and stuff like that, you know, typical teas, they hold enough to sort of kind of be okay. They don't really make a good large cup of tea. They don't hold enough volume. And herbs expand when you soak them. 
So you end up with like some of them coming out because they'll actually expand enough sometimes to open them. So again, the, the four life tea infuser and the French press I recommend, I'll put both in the show notes, but no grinding. There's no preparation. If you wanted peppermint tea, you could literally, and that's all you want is just plain peppermint. Go buy a pound of bulk peppermint and figure out how many teaspoons to whatever you're making you like. That's it. That's all that it is. There's nothing special. There's, I, I think what it is is whenever people are going to make something, they start thinking, well, I need to, to do something, right? I need to, to go be, I, 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 it can't just be you throw it in a jar and mix it up and use it. It is. That's pretty much all that it is. And uh, it, it's in many things. I'll be making biltong out of this deer, quite a bit of it, in fact. And people always want, well, you need a biltong box or a dehydrator. You need salt. You need pepper. You need coriander. You need some apple cider vinegar. And you need some rope to hang it up from. And it helps to have some uh, metal paper clips because you can make little hanging hooks out of them to hang your meat up. And then you need self-discipline to not eat the biltong before the biltong is done curing. Because it tastes good even when it's not done yet. Yes, I do that all the time. And I won't go to biltong today, but it's the same principle. But there has to be something no. There doesn't always have to be more. You know, how do I make a steak on the grill? Salt, pepper, and garlic, and throw that bitch on the grill. There's some other things I do once in a while, but in general, that's it. Salt, pepper, and garlic, throw it on the grill and cook it properly. Tea. Mix it, don't crush it, prepare it right. It's actually the preparation is more important than how you blend it, right? Because you're going to get something. But if you, you know, make your tea with lukewarm water instead of hot water, if you let it sit too long. So the other thing is when you, when you brew a tea, taste it. If it doesn't taste strong enough, then the answer might not be more tea. It might just be let it infuse a little longer. And before I go to my next one, I kind of want to point out, I mean, people doing a survival podcast. And they get a lot of crazy shit out of this redneck hippie duck farmer. Um, it's, but some, most of it's like really, really survival oriented, even if it's not all primitive or preparedness, you know, financial management, things like that, understanding investments, world of defense. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm talking about cooking or I'm talking about herbal freaking tea or something like that. Um, it, it's not some attempt to just make the show more female friendly or something like that in any way. Uh, this is a big part of my life, and it's a big part of my life because I believe that herbs are medicinal. All herbs are medicinal. Oregano is medicinal. And you go, no. It, oregano is, micro, uh, um, um, I'm sorry, antibacterial. It's antimicrobial. So it's, it's those two things alone. And when I did a show on herbal actions, I used oregano over and over and over again, showing all these different herbal actions that oregano possessed. Right, So I believe it's good for your health. I believe in saving money, and I think that's definitely a survival topic. Well, I can pick up you know, most, most herbs in one-pound bags for between, depending on what it is, between $6 and, and $18. And if I pick up four or five bags of, of herbs and make one big batch of herbal tea out of them, it'll damn near fill a five-gallon bucket. I'm into it for, what, $30, $35, $40? How expensive... Would that amount of tea bought in little round freaking tea bags be? And it's nowhere near as good. I don't know where it came from. I don't have the control over what it is. So, I mean, I think that then the other thing is, I think if you're talking about herbal medicine, people naturally see that as a preparedness thing. This is the simplest form of herbal medicine you'll ever practice. It's culinary, but it's also medicinal. Because all of these herbs have effects on our bodies. Lastly, I'm, again, back to health, 
I think it's fine if you drink a couple, three cups of coffee a day. I don't think it'll hurt you at all. Um, I think if you drink two or three pots of coffee a day, that that much caffeine is not good for you. And I don't like decaffeinated coffee. I was a coffee addict. And there's no other word for it uh, for 20 years. For 20 years, I drank multiple pots of coffee, coffee every single day of my life. Switching to herbal tea as my morning drink had let me stop with no ill effects whatsoever. I didn't, I didn't have a single bad day. Now, my first tea included a small amount of green tea with some caffeine in it, and that probably helped. But it was so markedly reduced from the tea I was drinking. So to me, all of those things make this subject definitely a preparedness subject and a modern survival subject. Um, the next question comes from Jonathan. Jonathan says, uh, when do you make a side hustle legit? Background. I'm a horticulturist at a private estate. I do work on the side for extra cash. One day I may turn that into a legitimate business. But for now it pays for groceries and gives my bank account a much needed rest. Let me just say, for example, that if I make $5,000 a year cash, is there a dollar amount where it would make it beneficial to put that income under a real business over the table with write-offs and all the other options that go with that. Or would it be better to just fly under the radar, so to speak, and continue dealing in cash for small stuff? I'm getting some bigger jobs, sometimes over $1,000, and I do worry about insurance and protections that having a business would convey. Uh, for any and all government officials that may read this, all examples here are hypothetical and thus should be assumed to apply to me or those replying. Okay, so, yeah, and I'm going to say up front that um, my only official advice on income is that when you earn income, you pay tax on it. Okay, that's my only official advice on income. When you earn income, you pay tax on it. Uh, but let's look at this question just from a slightly different thing. So having a business, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily mean you have insurance. Insurance is insurance. You either pay for insurance and you have it or you don't pay for it and you don't get it. And you got to always look at insurance and the question of, well, what are the risks versus the, the, the costs, right? So uh, there are things that could happen completely catastrophic that I don't have insurance for because the cost is astronomical to insure such things, and the risk of them happening is far, far lower than the risk of a meteor hitting me in the head. So I, you, you got to make that decision based on an insurance thing, not just on a side hustle thing. Um, when it makes sense... To make your business real, let's say not when it makes sense, when a time that it always makes sense is if I'm earning, let's say, $5,000 a year was the number you gave, and I'm, it's under the table, cash money, uh, no one knows about it, it's between you, the people you're working with in a fence post, and it, it's telling me, well, I don't have to pay any taxes on that money. But if I can come up with more than $5,000 worth of write-offs, And if certain things in my life I'm currently not writing off could be written off if the business was there. Even if those expenses would exist without the business, if the business can legitimately claim the expense and you could make 5000 and say you lost 1000 and actually pay less taxes, well then, fiduciarily to your own life, that always makes sense. Okay? Um It starts to make sense when you start getting things like, you know, you're making more than a thousand dollars from a single source. Well, it, I guess it can come down to depending, but in most instances, 
this is the way it's supposed to be. Anybody paying you in the form of wages greater than, I believe it's $600 a year, is supposed to do a 1099 on you. Then whether they gave you cash, a check, uh, or a, a bag of groceries with an assigned value to it, you're going to get a 1099, and that's reported income. So you need to think about that, and you, whenever you're doing work that's going to have it, whenever you're generating income that's not taxed, you need to put money away to pay tax on it. But when you're paying a 1099, that day is going to come faster than you think. So my rule of thumb on any money that's earned 1099 is 25 to 35%, depending on your tax bracket, is put away in a corner. You pay quarterly at whatever your estimate it is. You leave the rest that's not going to go to the government in that reserve account in case you owe more at the end of the year. And then when you file your taxes, you either get money back and put it in the hole or you take money out of the hole and give it to the tax masters as you see fit. Pretty much what I do is just that. I, w I withhold from myself 30% of all income that comes out of the business. Uh, it's paid quarterly to the government. And then we get a nice return, actually, because we have a good accountant uh, when we go. And people always say, well, Jack, but they have your money. You shouldn't let them have your money. It's terrible. And, uh, you know, they, you could have that and be doing something with it. Well, unless I actually need it for capital investment, I mean, what is it going to do? Sit in the bank and make me a quarter point? I, I, you know, I'd rather just... I know I'll do that file. I won't have an unexpected expense. That money will come back like a windfall. We'll invest it. We'll put it in savings. We'll take a trip, whatever. That, that's kind of how I view it. So um, when you're looking at this, you, you have to start asking yourself, are you going to get into situations where that income is going to be reported whether you planned on it or not? And then it definitely makes sense to take it legit because a lot of things start becoming deductible. And I'm going to save you know, what becomes deductible for another question later because it's kind of similar to this. But please understand that I can't tell you a, a specific time, even if we take away the legal gray areas. Like you should, when you get to this point, you know, with a dollar amount or a number of hours a week amount or anything like that, you know, make the business legitimate. Here's the problem with not making it legitimate. If the plan, so take the taxes and just put them on the shelf for a minute. If your plan for your business, you know, uh, you know, Jonathan's, uh, Jonathan's tree and lawn or whatever is to eventually take that business legitimate. And when you do, you want to walk away from the W-2 job to the world of true self-employment. And you have no history, and you go to a bank, and you say, I want a small business loan. Well, as far as they're concerned, your business started yesterday, not three years ago as a side hustle. That's, that's one example. When you go to get insurance, and you need more complicated insurance, because let's say right now you carry some very basic liability insurance so that you know if if somebody falls on a branch you pruned and skins their face and, and manages to sue you successfully you're covered like it's that kind of stuff and you need to talk to an agent about what you would carry for because i don't even know if what you're doing is related to your job right so you need to talk to an insurance agent about what you're doing and what kind of insurance that would look like well let's say that you're a small guy and for a couple of years you're with an insurance company and you're carrying some basic stuff just to cover your own ass And as you, you grow and, and get to a bigger status, you decide, well, I need a, a special kind of insurance. Or you're bidding on a contract, and it's some kind of government contract or large company that requires you to carry some specific type of insurance. 
and you're going to an insurance company trying to get that type of policy and you've been in business for a day, it might be a lot more complicated than even if you never asked for that before you've been in business. So these are the things that you have to start looking at. And if you do start you know, getting larger growth out of your customers, you, you have this track record that you know, goes back to the date you made it official. So you have to think about the long-term goals of the business. Um, you know, in spite of my official answer, I think if there's a kid running around with a, with a lawnmower and a beat up pickup truck, if anybody does that anymore, mowing lawns for the neighbors and the neighbors are paying them, you know, 50 bucks cash, 25 bucks cash here and there. He's making a few hundred dollars a week. I, I didn't see it. I don't know who he is. I don't know what you're talking about. And you got me, right? But if that kid wants that business, to actually be a brandable, marketable business. If he wants to take the beat-up truck and buy a new truck and put a logo on the truck and write off all the mileage on the truck and be able to finance the really cool, you know, uh, zero-turn lawnmower. And, you, you know, at some point, that's where you, you know, regardless of what, because you can have a side hustle and have it just be you're doing business as a sole proprietor. Um You can write some stuff off. It doesn't have to be an LLC. You can go into business as 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 as, uh, as Jonathan right now, and you can report your income like you're supposed to, and you can write off your deductions like you're supposed to, and you can or may not carry insurance depending on what your actual risks and liabilities are and what the requirements are, and that's that's fine. There's it's not like you have to do it as a corporation to do it. But then you also have to look at local ordinances. Do you need a business license? California need to usually a business license to like make a candle and sell it to your neighbor or some stupid shit like that. In Texas, if you tried to get a business license for something like home candle making, they would be like, "What is wrong with you? You know, we we don't we don't go away. Go don't bother us. We don't have time. Make sure you charge sales tax and pay the comptroller. But get out of here. Go away, little boy. We don't care." You know, so you got to also look into that. Um, in making decisions, I would always advise you when it comes to business, consulting with a tax attorney and a CPA with a caveat. Your tax attorney and CPA are always going to try to make what they're doing for you ironclad. You take their counsel and then you use that counsel to make your own decisions. Sometimes you get an opinion from multiple attorneys. When they all tell you the same thing and they're all very animate about it, I would do this if I were you, then you should take that counsel. When you have varying opinions and different levels of concern and all, then you know, well, this is my risk, but I don't think it's worthy of that great a concern, or here's how I mitigate that. And, and all of that has to be done based on your individual needs. Okay, the, uh, the next one I have is what the framework of government could look like starting fresh with current technology. Inspired by the ongoing discussions of UBI, which is Universal Basic Income, and blockchain technology on the show, my own thoughts about citizen ratification of law and coupled with the unique position of the Icelandic Pirate Party has currently led me to illustrate my thoughts in a 10-minute video on what the framework of a government could look like given a blank slate of modern technology. The video is only 10 minutes long. I know you're busy, but would love to hear your thoughts. I decided that I'm going to go ahead and play this 10-minute uh, video by our friend here named Fred on the air. And uh, when I play that, I'll come back and give you some of my thoughts on it. I don't agree with all of it, but I do think it's an interesting take on things. 
So the Icelandic Pirate Party has been given a really unique historic opportunity to explore what modern government can look like, given some of our present technologies. And I want to share my thoughts about how universal basic income, blockchains, and citizen ratification could change the framework of government as we know it. So Iceland's in a really unique position here. They've done a few things over the last couple of years that's really set them apart. They prosecuted bankers after the 2008 economic crash. Uh, since 2010, they've had 26 convictions of bankers and financiers from manipulation and fraud, 20 of which are serving five-and-a-half-year sentences um, in prison right now. They, uh, at one point, talked about joining the EU and then decided not to do that. So they've, um, they are certainly open to doing things a little different. What's really interesting is the Pirate Party made a, a play for government this year, and um, they did not get a majority, but Iceland's president, Johansson, has asked the nation's Pirate Party to form government. And what has happened was you had two larger parties, and because they could not come up with an absolute uh, majority, the parties that won more votes than the Pirates have failed to secure a working majority it's therefore the pirates turn to lead negotiations. What's really interesting about the uh, the pirates is their policies emphasize uh, privacy and freedom, personal support of cryptography, and they follow the International Pirate Party Codex that says members should take advantage of the opportunities offered by the internet and are therefore enabled to think and act without borders. So first off, I want to say that I'm not going to go in-depth on how universal basic income works or blockchains, but I will put those links in the description below. Uh, basically, universal basic income is when a government decides to give all of its citizens, regardless of their income level, a basic income to meet their needs. And uh, blockchains are the technology behind Bitcoin that allows us a new system of accounting to um, look at a fundamentally different way of approaching things like uh, government formation of corporations, contracts, and of course currency. Now for this to work the entire idea of debt-based currency has to go away and we have to think of something completely new. Now Iceland was the inspiration for this but I'm not intimately familiar with Iceland's government or how many levels of government or how they are organized. So I'm going to base this off the United States just for illustration. So if the United States was to give each adult American $2,500 per person, and this is based off of uh, the numbers that the um, government of Switzerland was looking at for their UBI, um, how would that look? Well, first of all, all taxes as we know it go away. All taxes. In, in my perfect world, all taxes disappear, every single one of them. And the various levels of government get a percentage match per person. So in this case, the federal government would get a 2% match per person. The state would get a 3%. The county would get a 4%. City governments would get a 5% match, but if you did not declare a city, if you did not reside in a city, then that 5% match would also go to the county government, giving them a total of a 9% match. So let me explain what this does. 
This makes the states, the counties, and the cities compete for the best citizens. This creates a situation where the federal government is only responsible for giant, big-ticket things like defense and to some degree infrastructure or whatnot, and puts the majority of government at the lowest level where the citizens can have the greatest impact. <clears throat> now, these, these percentages might have to change or whatnot, but this is how I would want it structured. So the federal government got the least amount of money, and the local government got the greatest. And keep in mind, these are not taxes. These are simply the government's UBI, for lack of a, um, a better descriptor. So, how would we manage this? Well, let's say you have to recertify every 12 to 15 months. And four out of five years, you can do that online. But one out of five years, you have to go in in person and uh, certify maybe at a post office, something like that. And the purpose for that is to have some sort of biometric, whether it's uh, fingerprint or, or whatever, to prove that you are still alive um, and not just reserting online to continue to draw your UBI. Um, sure, there's there's the potential to uh, game the system and for somebody to actually be dead for four years and their their spouse continue to collect their money, but in the long term, this is an easy solution. So when you go online to recertify, what happens? The first thing that happens is any laws that have gone that have been passed at the federal level um, would pop up. Um, any laws that were passed since your last recertification. And then whatever that law is, you as the individual citizen would have the opportunity to either reject it or ratify it. Now, once you've decided to reject or ratify everything at the federal level, then you're going to have to state which state you're actually living in. So if I click California, then any laws passed by the California state government, I would then have to reject or ratify and then all the way down. County laws, city laws. This does a couple of things. One is it makes the governed people responsible for the ratification of things that are going to affect them, which I think is great. But it also means that instead of laws being 5,000 pages long and no one actually reading it uh, with thousands of writers hidden in them, that if you don't make your law pretty basic and plain so that the average person will actually read it and comprehend it, then it's probably going to get rejected. And the more writers that you throw on there, the more people you are going to um, create a gap with and you're more likely to have your law rejected. So it has to be simple, it has to be straightforward, it has to make sense, or the average person is not going to ratify it. Once 50% uh, of the population either rejects or ratifies the law, it either goes into effect or goes away, and then it comes off the recertification process. Now, one additional step that I would love to see is that once we've dealt with the laws, the next thing that would come up is you would have to take a look at the federal budget and give your input. Now here's what happens. Every single law has to be financed in one of ten categories. The federal government would set their ten categories. The state government would have some that are the same, some are the different. County government would probably be very different. City government would be very different. 
every law has to be connected to a system of finance or a category to finance that law. So let's say you're looking at your federal budget and you say, well, the last, um, so the first, first thing on the federal budget here, defense. You can see that the current federal defense budget is 12% um, of the matching funds every month. And you look and you say, well, the last time I recertified, I selected 10%. Well, your default is that every category has to have a 5% minimum, and then you have 50 additional points to reallocate however you see. So if you think they're doing a good job with defense, you want to keep things the way they are, you leave it the same. If you think they did a really bad job with a certain thing, maybe you think federal law enforcement is overstepping their boundaries, then you can lower their budget. Now, you as an individual have an a tiny, 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 tiny effect on the overall budget. Um, but this is a good way for the uh, citizens as a group to either uh, support or deny certain policies uh, based on how they think they're being executed. So that's kind of the, uh, the framework. I would love to see Iceland do something different and extraordinary and... Uh, but um, who knows what will happen there. Um, I do want to give one final thought on the pirate party, which is in control over there, or not in control, but given this opportunity in Iceland. And the, uh, the emphasis of the pirate party is to take advantage of opportunities offered by the Internet and are therefore enabled to think and act without borders. Now, I would love to see something different and extraordinary uh, come out of this unique opportunity. Okay, um, it, there's interesting things to discuss there. I won't go too long on this one because I gave you know uh, Fred 10 minutes there, so I, I don't want to turn this into a whole show within a show. Um, there are a couple of things I, I want to start out with. So the first one was he said there'd be no taxes. There's no taxes at all, uh, none. Everything is funded by you, by AI, including the government. If you want a government that... That does the stuff that you're thinking a government would do, by the way that you're talking here, you cannot have that. Uh, as I said, doing UBI, it, it would be in, immediately bankrupting to the nation. Immediately bankrupting to the nation on the current economic paradigm. You have to change the, change the economics to make it work. And one way would be with a true fiat currency. Oh, fiat, ah, that's what Bitcoin is. Okay? Bitcoin is fiat. It's just not fiat by the state. It's fiat by function. In other words, since the parameters of Bitcoin are known, and since it's fungible and exchangeable and divisible and readily acceptable, then it works. And it works because it was declared to work in the markets. The market created the fiat on it. There's nothing backing a Bitcoin. It's a promise that someone else will accept. A promise. That's it's a mathematical currency. There's no reason a, a state with the clout that a state has could not do it. They probably wouldn't do it right, but they could do it right. So one way we could create a UBI is that the government simply creates the money money necessary to fund UBI uh, every year. And if we don't have UBI get giant raises every year, it's, it's obviously meant to be a pauper's existence, but at least you have your basic shit covered, then it doesn't become runaway inflation because it doesn't go up, or it goes up very, very little and very, very seldom. 
So mathematically, I'm not saying we should do it. I'm saying mathematically it could work. However, if you're also paying for the um, aircraft carriers and the you know border security and the Department of Education and the Department of Health and Human Services and the, the Department of Housing and Urban Development and all the other bazillion things the government does um, with UBI, uh, that you're creating that money every year to give to the government, well, then you just can't do that because you would create a new three, four, five trillion dollars a year that the government would spend 100% of it. Because that's what governments do with money. They spend it. That's the only thing the governments do with money is spend it. And all that money would go into the private sector and have to be recreated next year because there's no path for the money to go back to the government. So that's the fly in that ointment. Now, could somebody find a solution to this? I guess. We don't have one yet, though. So maybe what he meant was all welfare goes away. But I don't think so, because he included, you know, this is the government's UBI, right? So the government gets a percentage based on all the people, the total to the Fed, and then the states get their piece and all. And I kind of sort of get where you're coming from with that. Though I will point out that some of the greatest atrocities in government are not by, being committed by the federal government. They're being committed by towns and cities and counties. That's where all the totalitarianism is in this country in actually interfering with people's individual lives. The federal government is jacking with classes of people. The local governments are jacking with individual people. So it's not necessarily like those guys are better. But I, I get what you're trying to do, and I won't try to change your paradigm. It's like poke holes in what wouldn't work. So one way that we could do this and make it work is first thing we do is we eliminate all welfare. All welfare. And maybe for people that are already on Social Security, if their UBI would be lower than Social Security, they get the differential until they die and there's some, you know, aging off process where, you know, if you're 40, you know, you're not going to have Social Security. You're just going to have your UBI. So you aren't going to get none. And people that are 55 are going to get a little. And people that are 65 are going to get all of it or the differential. So that comes up to it. Because some people, if we had a UBI of, let's say, 2,500 a month, they would get more on UBI than they would on Social Security. But Social Security is bankrupting the country. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Whether or not it should, whether or not if it was managed properly, it wouldn't have. But right now, in its current form, it's our single largest ledger item. The Department of Defense and Social Security account for the majority of money our government spends. But we eliminate it all. So that that is like a, a snake eating its tail. That money doesn't count because we were already spending it. And we eliminate Social Security tax because you don't need to tax something if you're not going to provide the thing that you're taxing for. So Social Security tax goes away. Let's say we eliminate income tax for everybody, including the rich people. Yes, we're not even going to tax the rich people's income. We eliminate all taxes in this system from a standpoint of taxes on income. We tax corporations at 15% flat. On income. No loopholes, no straight income. So uh, expense is an expense, but none of these special incentives and programs and crap. You, you, you run your company, you make your money, you report your income, you pay a 15% flat tax on it. Now we got some money coming. Now see, we got a sustainable system here. Okay. Then we say there'll be some sort of a sales tax, a national sales tax. So that when you earn money, when you make money, when you invest money, you don't pay tax on it, but when you spend money, you pay tax on the money that you let go of. That could probably fund the whole thing. And then the government could create the differential. 
Uh, and the main differential they would be creating is to make sure that enough mon money to pay out in UBI, which would then generate business, which would then generate tax revenue back into the government. And because of the compounding effect of the dollar as it moves through an economy, $1 can theoretically generate more than $1 in taxes over a year. How you say? Let's say we have, let's say we just got rid of, we did the, the breakdown of the taxes, like, you know, there's no sales taxes anymore. At the national, the, the state level, the county level, we just say, you know, we're going to do that anymore, right? There'll be one flat tax rate, I don't know, 10% for the whole country. Probably have to be higher to do all the shit people are going to want done, but let's just say it's 10% to make it nice and easy. And a dollar ends up in my hand. And I go down to the convenience store today, and I don't spend just that dollar, but we're only going to track that dollar. And I, I, I get a, a six-pack of beer and a bag of beef jerky. I hand the guy... 15 bucks, and he gives me my change. But we'll track down the $1 that I spent there at that store. That dollar is now in that register. It generated 10% sales tax. Guy walks in five minutes later, buys exactly $9 worth of shit. Okay, He puts his money in the till. He pays tax on it. They hand him a dollar back. He takes that dollar. He goes out, some Girl Scout comes up to the front door, he buys some cookies from her, that's not taxable, she has the money. That money now goes into the Girl Scouts of America fund, it doesn't pay for Girl Scouts, it pays for salaries for the people that are in control of the Girl Scouts of America. That goes into a salary, that salary then goes into a guy's hand, that guy now goes out and spends that dollar to buy a six pack of beer and beef jerky and it gets taxed at 10% sales tax again. And if that dollar bill can just make that simple beef jerky beer circuit 10 times in a year, it will generate $1 will generate $10 in sales taxes. Because every time it moves, it's taxed. And that's when you realize how insidious sales tax really is. But it's far less insidious than income tax. Because if I want to avoid a sales tax, I just don't spend my money. If I want to, if I want to avoid an income tax, I have to not have income. That's, that's a lot harder to do. If I want to be successful in life anyway. So I think that this can work. I think there's a lot of good ideas that, that, that Fred's floating, but there's problems. I do think it's interesting though, this concept of, well, I would, uh, you know, go to a computer screen and say, you know, Department of Defense, Department of Education, Department of Justice, whatever, all the places that money goes to in the government. And uh, I surely like to see that list gets shortened a lot, but let's just say it's the list is what it is. And I get to decide what percentage of the money I'm contributing goes there. Now, with a sales tax system, this is more difficult, okay? But if it's, if it's allocated by, you're basically voting now on the allocation of money, okay, then it doesn't really matter how much sales tax I generated. You could almost generate that down to just everybody being some kind of prorated governmental UBI now and just assume that everybody's equally equal in value and spending more money doesn't give you a bigger say. Making more money doesn't give you a bigger say. Everybody gets the same say. But you're not gonna you're not gonna vote yourself a welfare program because we don't have those anymore. Get your UBI, live like a peon, or don't. It's up to you. Right? You can go out and do something with your life to, to earn a little more. Or you can go out and develop like social capital and cultural capital in your life. You can do whatever you want, but you're not getting food stamps. You're not going to vote yourself, stuff like that, because it just doesn't exist. It's been written into the Constitution that that doesn't exist anymore. So you're just going to decide which departments of government are doing a good job and allocate money there. Do you know where that's from? 
You know, so seriously, that is not from the pirate party. That is uh, a concept from one of my favorite authors of all time, who is very, very non-political guy. And in fact, uh, it comes all the way, the book that he wrote where that's uh, postulated in it uh, was published October 2nd, 1989. The book is called One, and it's by Richard Bach. Uh, Richard Bach is most famous for the books Illusions and Jonathan Livingston Siegel, which were vote, made, I think, around 69, 70. Okay. But one, as soon as I saw or I heard that mentioned idea of allocating the funds, I remember reading in Richard Bach's book, One. And in One, he gets to go 20 years into the future and see himself uh, as he would be and talk to himself as he would be 20 years in the future. And 20 years in the future, the government has changed. And it might not even be the 20 years. There might be multiple leaps. This is a long time since I read the book. But at one point, he meets a future self of his that says, well, yeah, we have government, but we don't vote on people anymore. We vote on where our money gets spent. And it was exactly this, that you allocated like so much to you know defense, so much to what have you. And you know it was fanciful, and the whole world had done it or whatever. But, uh, but that concept, first time I ever came across it was that book, Richard Bach won a novel. I have a link to it in today's show notes. It's not the theme of the book. Okay, the theme of the book is very much more a individual spiritual journey theme. Um, but that and other things that are very similar to this are in that book. And I think you really got to take in that this was a guy writing a book who kind of put this into a plot line in 1989 before anybody had even heard. <laughs> You've got mail, right? Okay? Before anybody even heard that, he was already thinking this way. Hell of an author. Some really amazing books. Recommend you check them out. Uh, let's take another one. What do you guys hear this one? It says, Jack, what are your thoughts about using a letter of introduction when you move into a neighborhood and help create connections with neighbors? Why don't more people do this? Background. My wife and I moved to a suburb of Cleveland in December 2003. We took the time to create a one-page letter with a family picture and basic bio. We sent it to all our neighbors, and the results were fabulous. When the snow melted, everyone said hi and came by to chat. We know everyone that surrounds us, and they know us. We exchanged phone numbers, and even when dinner was dinner is a block one Christmas, I feel my security is greatly enhanced. My real community was maintained. If I ever have a problem, I'm certain a neighbor would lend a hand. Please feel free to use my name. Thank you for the work you do. And this comes from Mark. Mark, I don't know why people don't do it other than maybe they never thought of it. Because I think it's a brilliant idea, and it's one that I wish I would have thought of myself so I could have claimed it was mine. I mean, it's that good. Um, and I'll tell you why I think it works. Especially in a place like where I live, where everybody has a fence. And I don't mean for the backyard, I mean for the whole house. You can't get to any... All the people that live within a mile and a half of me, you can't get to their front door without going through a gate. And many of us have these great big giant bow-wows that run around out there that make sure no one does that because it's a security enhancement. But it doesn't mean we don't like each other. It doesn't mean we're not friends. But we have... you. The way you meet a neighbor here is you just happen to be out by the gate when they're out by the gate and you say hi or you see them and then you kind of meet and then you kind of go from there. So with happenstance and all, it might take a long time to meet somebody. Even with a regular neighborhood, it, it's hard for a lot of people to walk up to a person they don't know and say hello. Um, it should be a very easy thing for humans to do. 
But it's become more and more difficult for people. More People are more and more apprehensive. People are more and more, people more and more want to be left to hell alone. So when you want to be left to hell alone, you figure the other person wants to be left alone and maybe they won't think that it's just a friendly reach out. They'll think you're bothering them, what have you. It, but see, the letter is really an invitation. We're approachable. Here's who we are. Here's our contact info. You know, come by and say hello. Well, now I'm not going to a stranger's house. I've been invited to say hello because you said hello first. And in a place like where I live, if you live in a similar place where you don't just, you just don't walk up to somebody's door here. You, cause it's, 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 it's probably a bad idea. You're probably going to get bit or they're going to wonder what, what are you doing on my property having come through my gate? Cause gates and fences are great at keeping out what? Honest people. They're not really good at keeping out criminals. You put bow wows in there, they become pretty good at keeping criminals out, but, Gates keep honest people out. Because when you see somebody that's come onto your property uninvited and come through a gate, they knew they crossed a boundary, right? And they chose to do it anyway. So your hackles go up. You have a little bit of an alert there. But if you send out a letter and you live in a place where your door is not that approachable, but that says our email address is, our phone number is, please let us know if you, you, know, you need anything or what have you, then one day you might get a phone call. Hey, I'm your neighbor next door. I noticed that you were doing this. I was interested. In it. You started dialogue. And I think it's fantastic. I think a really great resource online for this is Nextdoor. N-E-X-T-D-O-O-R.com. Nextdoor.com. If you are not on Nextdoor, go on Nextdoor.com, set up an account. And if there's not a thing going on in your neighborhood, start inviting neighbors that you do know and get your you invite 13 people in a neighborhood to get it established and be permanent on next door. It's been fabulous, but it's also the case that not all your neighbors are going to find it. So this letter kind of is a low-tech approach, but a high-tech solution in a way because what makes a solution high-tech isn't always the technology underneath it, but how high-touch it is. And uh, this is simplistic because even if you don't know a person's name, you can just walk around the street and see everybody's address and just eat, you know mail them a snail mail letter. And if you say like Wilson on the thing in the 909, you know Smithview Lane, you just put the Smiths and mail it to them. I would not advise taping it to people's doors or putting it in people's mailboxes by yourself without mailing it. The door thing might be okay. It depends on your neighborhood and how people are and what have you. But it almost like you're like a door hanger, like for Domino's, but it's for your family. I don't, I don't know how well that would be received. It might. I, I don't know. I, I would kind of find it a little weird. Putting it in an envelope looks like a letter without a stamp on it in a mailbox. I think most normal people would be like, well, that's fine. It makes sense. Why spend a stamp to send it from over there? However. If you put your hands on in whatever a person's mailbox and it is not yours, it is a federal crime. It is a fe you are not supposed to put your hands in someone else's mailbox. The end, unless you are a U.S. mail carrier or you are the owner or fiduciary of said mailbox, you are interfering with U.S. mail service. You're also using a U.S. mail. Um, Facility, basically, asset. That space is like co-owned by the, the government and the person that put the box there. Now, I'm not saying that if you and your buddies have an agreement that, hey, I'll leave you know the keys to the old truck and the mailbox for you, that that's a problem. I am telling you that since people don't know who you are yet, if you're seen opening mailboxes and sticking things in them, it could cause a problem. 
Okay? So don't do that. I would spend the stamp. Your, your neighbors are worth it. You know, but if you sent out 20, 25 of these things, so you're out 12, 15 bucks, right? Uh, call it 20 with paper and envelopes to the 20, 20, 25 closest neighbors. I, what might that do for you, especially as a new neighbor? I, I think that's, I will, I would now say that I would do that every single time. And I think I would encourage contact by saying, if it would not be too much trouble, please reach out to us at email address, blah, 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 and, and, and just let us know that you got our, our, you know, mail. Because what happens is if they say, yeah, we got it, we, whatever they say, even if it's, hey, we just got it, we thought it was cool, that's, that's nice, if, you know, what have you. Um, when they do that, you just make an email user group and now you have a list of all your neighbors that have responded to you. So if you decide you want to take this a little further and do a barbecue one day, you have your invite list. You can just send it to them. And I'm going to do one more little etiquette thing before we move on here. I don't care if it's for this. I don't care what it is. If you have a big group of people that don't know each other and you're going to send an email to that whole group, blind carbon copy. Blind carbon copy. Not just because you're giving away everybody's email address and that's not polite, but there will always be that one freaking person in an email chain like that, that one freaking person that every freaking time they're going to reply, they're going to put reply all. And people that are no longer interested are going to be annoyed. And then there's going to be that other one person, the complete moron, that keeps bitching about it and also does reply all. So blind carbon copy group emails to large groups of people that are not collaborating. If you have a, a group of people that are collaborating on a project, of course you open copy everybody. But when you're sending an email like this, blind carbon copy. Great idea, Mark. I think it's fantastic. Again, someday I might forget it was yours and pretend it was mine. I don't really do that, guys. I think, Mark, great idea. Um, next one comes from Jake. Jake says... On the most recent feedback show, a guy shared his story of preparedness failure with his walk to a gas station for fuel. I cannot tell you how unexpectedly uplifting, practical, and motivating the story was. I would love it if you could make an entire episode or even a part of each episode feature a story of a listener-generated preparedness failure. Failure is the best teacher, and we do not hear of it. Hell, we do not. I do not mind sharing a story of shitting my pants with a truck full of everything needed to survive the zombie apocalypse, minus the toilet paper and baby wipes, if it helps somebody else to remember theirs. In all seriousness, failures can be funny, serious, or plain old education in reality. Much respect, Jake in the middle of Lower Michigan. Um, he also has an Einstein quite quote here. He says, I do not know what war, what, I do not know with what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stone. Albert Einstein, words of wisdom. So anyway, Jake, on, on this uh, concept, um, I don't have the mental bandwidth to add another segment of the day. So I, 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 there's no way I can have the failure of the day uh, in, in the show. Uh, but I do do a listener feedback show uh, every week, and I do do a listener call show every week. And if there was a call or an email with a failure in it, it would be really easy to make that one of the things that we cover in that show. And if I had enough of them between those two, we would probably once a week have a failure of the week for a while anyway. And that would all be based on audience uh, feedback. 
Uh, I've had some failures. Most of them have already been shared with you guys because I do think we learn a lot for fail from failure. And I never try to hold myself up as someone who doesn't mis make mistakes or never screws anything up. I even have done some of the things where I'm like, Jack was wrong, right? So um, I I'm fine with sharing them. I'm just not going to go out and make one a week so that I can. But between all of you, there's probably enough stories like that. So if you would like to contribute your failure to the show... Uh, send me an email, and when you put TSPC in the subject line, make sure you put TSPC uh, failure in the subject line, and then you know do it like a normal feedback. And if I can get enough of them geared up, I'll make a folder that's just for failures, and I'll pull one out of it every week. And if you call me with your failure, because some people prefer to call, then just shoot me an email after you do it and tell me you did it and what number is, and I'll make sure it gets in the screening for that week. Um, I'm not promising I'll put them all on. I'm not promising it'll take off. I'm not promising I'll get enough of them because it's out of my control. It's a circle of influence and circle of concern. I, I have some influence over it, but my influence is limited. All I can do is put it out there into the universe and see what you guys do with it. So failures of the week or maybe even failure of the month. If we get you know a dozen a year, I could do failure of the month. Uh, I have to do something on these shows from user feedback anyway. So I would love uh, to, uh, to, to hear your thoughts on this. The next one I have is from Frank. Frank says, I'm taking a one-year assignment that will nearly double my normal income salary. I would appreciate any suggestions on reducing my taxes. I will definitely bump up into a higher tax bracket. I have a salary job versus a self-employment business. Regards, Frank. Frank, you are effed. There is nothing you can do. They are going to tax you by the balls, and you, if you are going to remain um, a, a lowly employee, you have no real recourse. That's not exactly true. I said it, though, to drive home a point. I'll give you some ideas of some things that you can do, but you are fundamentally limited. The rest of the world that uh, has decided to break out of the employee mold can deduct things you'll never be able to deduct. Never, ever, ever be able to deduct. And it's not illegal, and it's not immoral, because the taxation is immoral in the first place, okay? And it's completely legitimate. It's completely above board what, what we do. And there's a reason that it's that simple and so easy to do. The people that write the laws, you call them congressmen, I call them thieves, uh, are not employed by the people. They are employed by greater thieves. These greater thieves is the corporations of the world, and the corporations are owned by the rich people of the world who are all, in some matter of speaking, self-employed. Okay. Even the CEO of the company that he, you know, a guy owns a company and he's a CEO and he pays himself a salary out of the company that he pays income tax on. He's got other things he's doing that he's acting as an owner or self-employed or what have you, or he's paying for things with the company's money that he's using and you can't use it for personal use, but it's still being used for personal use because he's a person. If you want to get a little gray there. Um, And so the people that pay for the laws to be written are all people that benefit by having massive ways that you can legally take deductions, and they are the ones writing the laws. So those of us that have decided we don't like paying taxes have created businesses for one, for, you know, of many reasons. One is reduced reduction of tax footprint. So there's, there's so much I can't say to help you because you don't have that. So my number one piece of advice would actually be 
to determine a way in which to create the above-board business we started talking about at the beginning of the show, even if it's part-time, even if it's a side hustle that you make legitimate, because then there's a lot of other creative things that you can do. And there's plenty of good books out there on reducing your tax footprint. Um, the number one way that I can give you to reduce your tax footprint, and it depends on your state, what your state's income tax level is, what your income level is, and how much money you spend. But the, the, the one, the biggest missed opportunity is reduction of your income tax by recording every penny itemized of your sales tax. So I believe, because I live in a state without a state income tax, I believe that if you live in a state with a state income tax, you can either deduct the state income tax or the state sales tax, but not both. And a state sales tax comes with a safe harbor number. That means it, they'll say, well, you, you, you probably paid at least $2,500 or whatever. Based on your income and the state you're in, your safe harbor is $2,500 of state sales tax. And that becomes a deduction because you already paid it as tax. You're not going to pay tax on it twice is what the rationale is. So we save every receipt, not just business receipts. Business receipts inherently is deductible anyway because it's a business. But if we go out and we buy um, things that are clearly not business related, those receipts go into a different pile. My wife has a very simple Excel spreadsheet that I made her, and she goes through and she just enters all of them and keeps saving them, does it all year long, and then puts them all in a giant box stack of receipts. Groceries, everything, any state sales tax gets recorded. And since we make a decent amount of money and we spend probably more than we should, we always go over our safe harbor. That is a tax deduction. That's one of the more creative things you can do. It doesn't matter that you're an employee when you're doing that. So that's that's another way that you can reduce your tax footprint. Um, a lot of people will tell you put your money into an IRA and uh, then you get the you know or a 401k. Either or, depending on what you're qualified for, and then you're deferring the tax on that money, therefore you're not paying tax on it now. Since I would always, 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 freaking infinity, always tell you to go with a Roth IRA, then you won't get that advantage, and I don't think that advantage outweighs the advantage of the Roth over the conventional. It, it's, it's so huge. Uh, another creative way that you can actually reduce federal income tax is going to be to give donations of investments versus money. So you can actually donate, let's say, stock or bond to a charity instead of cash. It's not always the easiest thing in the world, but it can be done. How does this save you money? So let's say I was going to give my charity of choice uh, $2,000 this year. And that $2,000 is uh, going to get given to them no matter what. And I have some stock that I kind of would like to sell that, uh, anyway, $2,000 worth of it was going to get sold anyway. Maybe I was going to sell 10 but at least two was. So what I do is I donate the security to the charity. Let's say I've held the stock for a while, and let's say did I, I had I, my basis on the stock is $1,000. So I was going to pay capital gains on $1,000. By donating the $2,000 to charity, I never realized the gain and I still deduct the value. It's completely legal. It's totally acceptable. It's totally okay. Now, not every charity accepts 
donations like that, but it can be done. That's another way that you can basically, you know, reduce your tax footprint. But see, these you start getting really complicated. Um, you know, when you buy big ticket items, you buy a car, you buy a boat, your sales tax always is a big chunk, and that will often help. So I don't know, go out and buy a boat. Uh, even if you finance it, you're going to pay the sales tax up front, and it's going to be realized. It, it's difficult, though. It, it's very difficult to significantly alter your tax footprint as an employee. Um, employees don't write tax codes. Businesses do. But even a small side business opens up a plethora of things. If you start blogging and you're legitimately blogging for money and you have some revenue, even if you lose money, Almost anything you blog about that's a consumable would be deductible. If you go out and buy something to review it that you get to keep, it's an asset because it's a thing. It stays. But if you were to do a blog on wine and twice a week you reviewed a wine and you drank it and it was gone, it's deductible. It's deduct as long as the intention is to make a profit. You don't have to be successful, but you have to legit. And I'm not suggesting here, wink, wink, nod, nod, you were trying to make a profit. I'm saying, why the hell wouldn't you? So if you're legitimately trying to make a profit, and if anybody looking at the website would say, this is for commercial purposes, there's advertising on it, there's some sort of membership, there's referrals, whatever, and, and it's consistent, and it's done, and it's always not done. It's not written like, I drank some wine today. It was pretty good. I got it at Trader Joe's. It was called Bobby Blue's Wine. You know, if it's legitimately, anybody looking at it would reasonably ascertain that this is a legitimate review site for wines, it's deductible. You're a journalist. If you were reviewing ammunition, you fired it, it's gone. You could also go to Shot Show as media. Yes, you can. You really can. If you're running, now Shot Show is a different animal, but for, for the purpose of business, If you're legitimately trying to make a profit, you're now a journalist, you're media, and you're running a new media website, and you have expenses with that. And expenses could be, I went to the range this week, and we tested out Ruger's new, or you know, Hornady's new XHP line, or whatever it is. So, that's the number one way. That's the number one way, is to take your lifestyle and build it into your business so that many things in your lifestyle now become deductible. And it's not cheating. It, you can do it as cheating, and it's not smart. Um, I'm not suggesting, well, I go to the range every week. I blow through you know, 50 rounds of 30-06, so I'll just start writing about that. No, because then you're, doing the same, you're just using practice ammo or whatever, the same stuff every week. You have to have legitimately something of interest that you're doing for that. So you wouldn't be trying a different... And I, I'm not suggesting you do this. I'm just trying to give a simple example here. You wouldn't be doing a different box or brand of ammo every week uh, or, or something like that, but you don't object to it. That's a lifestyle business. You're, you're doing it because of the business, but it's enjoyable anyway. It fits your lifestyle. That's the number one way. Another way is you can generate capital losses if you're looking at your investments and you have an investment that's lost money and you're not in love with that investment any longer, sell it. 
go ahead and take the loss. Don't carry it into the next tax year. But that's, you know, you can't make bad investments just so you take deductions. But that's something. See, so when you're an employee and you're looking for this stuff, that's where you're always at. You're looking at don't miss the opportunities, but it's hard to create them. That, that's the big difference. Um, and, and I'll conclude with this. I don't claim to know freaking everything. And I'm not saying that I'm ironclad on being right about this. So, as always, if you are out there and say, no, Jack, I know five ways that you can significantly reduce your income taxes as a, you know, as a civilian, so to speak, as a, as a W-2 employee, and you want to send them in, I will put them on the air and I will thank you for your contribution because anything we can do to deny the beast, if, if it's, if it's energy, which is our money that comes from our work and our efforts, I'm all for it. If I could see to it that no American paid a dime of taxes this year, I would do it. If I could push a button and just say, nobody has to pay any taxes this year. So, Jack, you said we needed taxes if we're going to have a government. I said you needed taxes if you're going to have one. Not that you should. And I don't care. We would still have plenty of money for government without income taxes because the government has plenty of other sources of revenue. I believe individual income tax in America was something like $1.7 trillion uh, last year. And the rest of the almost $3 trillion of the budget came from somewhere else. So... There are ways that the government can rate, you know, does get money already other than income tax. So if we can starve the beast, starve the beast. So here's a question on basically not wasting a resource. This is Jack. Quick question. Any thoughts on what to do with all the clothes hangers I get for my dry cleaning? Can they conduct electricity? I've had just tons of these. I've kept all the years because I hate throwing them away. They've got to be good for something to use. Any thoughts would be welcome. Thanks, sir. Can they conduct electricity? The ones I'm thinking of, like the metal ones, they usually have a thing on. It's like we love our customers. It's paper covers it. They're all metal, like the old style ones that we used to have, and no love and hate when they tangled together. Uh, they can conduct electricity. Should they? Probably not. Anything you're going to do with electricity, you probably shouldn't be doing with a coat hanger. Uh, I'm I'm just saying. However, it is thick gauge, reasonably sturdy wire, and you'd think there'd be something. Uh, that people could do with coat hangers. And uh, so I started researching online, and I found a Pinterest page, and it's called 1,000-plus uh, Ideas with Coat Hangers. And i got to say, it's pretty freaking cool. Um, just some of the stuff that's there. Making Christmas ornaments and wreaths. Um Paper towel dispensers, uh, recycled wire and headers for shoe racks, beaded plastic clothes hangers that look kind of like artsy-fartsy like women would like that you might be able to make a business out of if you can get enough of them. Uh, uh, looks like hair loopy things, I don't know. Coat hanger, uh, jewelry tree, uh, Christmas tr small Christmas tree. Uh, a lot of Christmas stuff, I guess, this time of year. Uh, a cobweb-like artist piece in a corner that looks actually really cool. Uh, let's see, um, hanging jars with like uh, votive candles in them for like outdoor lighting. Um, I'm not going into each one. I'm kind of just looking at the picture and figuring out what they are. Uh, there's one article alone. It's 21 uses for a coat hanger. People making words and threading, you know, like most of it's crafty type stuff. That's what you'd expect on Pinterest. Um, hangers for flip-flops. 
uh, the way to repurpose and bend them like that so people that have lots of flip-flops could hang them up in their closet. Um, I don't know what that thing is, but it looks kind of cool. Uh, again, another thing using jars and making handles for the jars. Um, wind chimes, uh, using them as frames for wind chimes. And it just keeps going and going. And there's some redundancy, the flip-flop things, things like a lot of people did that. Um, the heck is this? This is a, like a, a thing to hang. Oh, a herb hanger for hanging herbs from. Uh, for herbs to dry out, that's what that is. And uh, display hangers, like to, to hang pictures and stuff like that. Um, one person's building like these like lawn ornaments that look like butterflies and dragonflies. Uh, a lot of the stuff I look at and go, I don't really need that, or how much of that do I need? But I, I look and I see craft items that probably would be um, you know, marketable as sustainably produced because we're recycling something and saving it from a land uh, landfill. So I don't know. I'll put a link to this Pinterest page where you can see all this cool stuff. Uh, one did uh, trained plants, live plants in the shape of a heart for a Valentine's like thing. Um, lawn ornaments look like a kitty and a friggin' flower. Somebody made a flopsy dog. This lady looks very angry and she's holding a can of Comet. I don't know what she's doing. Um, art built integrated with other things like horseshoes. It looks pretty cool. Um, Cool stuff. Somebody made earrings, and it actually looks pretty cool. I don't know that I want to stick it in my ear, but it's cool nonetheless. So, yeah, I'll put a link where you can see all this stuff on this Pinterest page, and it, it would be interesting to, 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 to see uh, what other people can come up with because it is – I understand. Like, you don't want to throw something away. I also understand you don't want to be on hoarders either, so you got to be careful with it. Um, but – I mean, my normal use for a wire hanger in the past, cable TV got rid of this, was making an antenna for the back of your little TV, right? You took a coat hanger and you made it in a loop and you made, you pinched down the, the hook and you opened up the thing where the, uh, where the antenna went, the, the, the rabbit ears went and you, you put it on there. You could even do two separate ones. You had like, there was two screws and each got its own coat hanger and you could twist it. You could get pretty good TV reception, but I, I don't think that's usable anymore. And the other one was the locks that are for interior doors that you just have like a push button lock on one side and the other side is there's no, there's no key, but there's a little hole in the doorknob. Most of those you can put a piece of wire in that hole and there's a little depressible button in there. And when you press that button, you can open a door. So if you accidentally lock a, a door in your house, you take a coat hanger with a, you know, not the big thick ones, but the normal ones like you get from the dry cleaners. You just stretch it out and you open the door and then you bend the hanger back and put it back in the closet. Those are the two things I probably did the most in my life with coat hangers. But I bet there's other things that people could come up with. And I'd love to hear from you guys if you got anything more survivally than all this crafty stuff. Anyway, um, with that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did enjoy today's show, please consider joining the Members Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You can help support the show for, for as, you know, as little as 18 cents an episode is what it comes out to. And, uh, if you like the show, consider doing it. You'll get discounts on a lot of really great stuff. To learn more, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members and you can see all the great discounters and all the discounts they give you and all the great stuff. And uh, you'll be part of, uh, of, of the inner circle, so to speak, of people that help support the Survival Podcast. The other way to support us is by going to, you guessed it, tspaz.com, T-S-P. 
AZ.com, tspaz.com. That, that stands for the Survival Podcast Amazon. When you go there, you click a link, you go on over to Amazon, do your Amazon shopping, check out, spend the same money you were going to anyway, and you support our show. I mean, that's a pretty easy way to support a show. It doesn't cost you any money. It doesn't even really cost you time. I put stuff out, though, every day on Amazon that I actually use. And uh, I do that so you can learn about product and maybe buy it or learn about how to use a product so that you, you know, maybe you already have it or what have you. Today's is a pretty simple little product. It's called, uh, it's made by a company called Thorfire, and it's a cap light, like a hat light, cap light. It clips on the brim of your hat or your cap. And it's got five really bright LEDs. It runs on a couple of the little round uh, batteries, the CR2032s. I like that because I have a couple scopes, rifle scopes, that use those anyway, so I keep them around. You likely do, too, or have some other devices that use them. They look like really big, flat, thin hearing aid batteries, right? Um, and that keeps the footprint small. A lot of people I've seen, I was just hunting, and almost every guy out there had one of the headlamps. It's like, you know, it's like a light, and Stephen Harris recommends them. I keep a couple of those in my trucks, uh, so, you know, that if something breaks down, you can do stuff without your hands. I get it. Um, but I like to wear hats, and they don't really go together well, you know, and it's like this big thing where this thing just like clips on the rim of your hat. You put it in your pocket, you can leave it on your hat, whatever. And you have hands free use. The only problem I've had with them in the past is they're really not that bright. This thing's bright. It's affordable too. It's like 11 bucks for one or you can get a two pack for 19. Save some money. And, uh, my number one use for them is fishing. Absolute number one use for them is fishing. I don't know if you've ever tried to tie a fish hook, especially like a number 10 bait holder in the dark, but it's not fun. You know, it really isn't. Um, or get sort through tackle and not get hooks in your fingers out of your tackle box in the dark. Not fun. Or try to do any of that shit with a flashlight in your teeth. Not fun. Right, so having the hands-free bright light, and it makes me think. Back when I was a kid, growing up in Pennsylvania, there was this pond I used to fish. It was about a mile and a half from my grandparents, and uh, I'd go up there, and it was pretty damn dark around there. And every once in a while at night, you know, you get snagged, or you'd you'd, you'd gut hook a fish and just cut the line rather than, than tear the fish apart to get it out. And uh, then you got to tie a hook on. If you had a flashlight, then you're there with your teeth. All there were nights I was up there. I didn't plan on being up there at night. I wasn't a prepper when I was a kid. I was a kid. Kids are stupid, right? So no flashlight. You're trying to tie a hook in the dark, trying to feel it. And about 50 yards out from the pond, there was a little convenience store. And, and that was closed, but there was also a street light there. So I'd walk out and I'd stand under the street light and put my fish hook back on and then walk back in the woods and go fishing again. I wish I would have had one of these then. So I guess it was about 15 years ago. I saw one of these for the first time like at a Walmart. And I picked one up, and I, I loved it immediately. And I've always used them. I throw them in tackle boxes because that way, if I don't have my other one, it's, there's one in there. But And they're usually like six, seven bucks. But none of them were that bright till I found the Thor the Thor Fire. Now, Thor Fire is a little thicker than the, the, the ones that kind of fit the brim of a hat. You don't even know they're there. Those are really cool, too. But if you want to be able to really see, check out the Thor Fire. It also has a, a, a bendable, uh, like a, a rotating head. So you can have it shoot straight out or shoot down a little bit or down a lot. If you put it down too much, it's counterproductive. It blinds your eyes. But uh, just down a little bit, actually, kind of when you're fishing, too, you can have you know see the water. And if you're fishing like in a stream where you got hanging branches and stuff like that when you're casting, all stuff, it's hard to do with a freaking flashlight. And, again, unless you're really spending a lot of time walking in the woods or something like that, and you need to see long distances. I like these better than the strap on your headlights. 
Um, if nothing else, you throw it in the door, the map door of your truck, and assuming you wear hats like I do, um, you're never trying to, you know, use your air compressor to inflate a tire with a flashlight in your teeth. And I guess that's the big question. Do you, you do you wear hats? If you wear hats all the time, you want one of these. I'm telling you right now, pick one up for 11 bucks. Totally worth it. Uh, next up, let's talk about, uh, real quick, the TSP Business Directory. Uh, that's where you can have your business featured on the Survival Podcast for as little $5 every six months. Today's featured business directory member is, let me get the list. Oh, yeah, good one for this time of year. Second Amendment Jewelry. Second Amendment Jewelry provides unique handmade jewelry and gift items from spent shell casings. They're a small business right out of our audience that can take your spent shell casings and for, from a memorable hunting trip or shooting competition to turn them into keepsakes. Click on their link in the TSP Business Directory or visit their Etsy store. That's cool. And I didn't even ever really think about, like, you know, I never end up keeping them. But I always, when I shoot a deer, I take that case and I put it aside. What if you took your kid's first, you know, first cartridge from this first deer and maybe did something with it like that? Or some hunt that was really awesome, made a ring or something. That'd be kind of cool because it's not really worth that much. It's showcasing, but we know what we're, you know, memories are priceless, right? And they can never be repossessed either. Anyway, so Second Amendment Jewelry, check them out. With that, let's talk about real quick as we wrap up our song of the day. And, you know, we're uh, 13 days away from Christmas right now. It's the 12th. And I decided I'm going to start playing some Christmas music for you guys and uh, try to get into the season a little bit. And this song I'm playing today is absolutely my wife's favorite song, I think, Christmas song of all time. I guess there's other songs maybe she likes more but is not always in the mood for, but she always likes hearing this song. And uh, this has been done by dozens and probably hundreds of duets. It's Baby, It's Cold Outside. This one is the one from the movie Elf. Not the one in the movie um, where uh, Will Ferrell covers his eyes in the shower scene and runs into the wall and smacks into it and smacks into the locker and falls on the ground. And if you haven't seen the movie, please watch the movie. It's a great holiday movie. Um, but... The one where the actress from that movie, Zoe Dashnell, is singing with a guy named Leon Redbone. And Zoe Dashnell is kind of this, I don't know, what's the word for it, starlet, uh, diva type thing with some sitcom on TV. And honestly, I'm not real impressed. She was fantastic in Elf, though, like a totally different person. And I know she's put some music out and all, but it seems like this gal has got some chops when it comes to kind of like a Billie Holiday-like sound, like retro 30s sound. Beautiful voice. So I decided I'd play this version of the song for you today. I do think it's time for us to get into the holiday season, too, guys. I, I really do. Um, the only problem to me with Christmas being all year round is it wouldn't be special anymore. I, I love the holidays. I love the downtime. I love you know taking more time with friends and family. And I love the spirit of giving. And uh, so in, with that in mind, um, this is my gift to you today, a little... Uh, little motivation toward being a little bit more excited about Christmas. Here you go. Zoe Dashnell, Leon Redbone, Baby It's Cold Outside. I really can't but stay. But baby, it's cold outside. I've got 
to go away. My mother will start to worry Wonderful, what's your hurry? And father will be pacing the floor Listen to that fireplace roll So really I'd better Beautiful, please don't hurry maybe just a half a drink more Put some records on while I pour The neighbors might think Baby, it's bad out there Say What's in this no cash to be had out there I wish I knew like starlight To now. break the spell I'll take your hat Your hair looks swell I ought to say no, no, Mind no, sir Mind if I'm closer At least I'm gonna say that I tried What's the sense of hurting my pride? I really can't stay Baby, don't hold out, ah, but it's cold outside. I simply must go. But baby, it's cold outside. The answer is baby, no. Baby, it's cold outside. This welcome has been lucky that you so in. nice and warm. Look out the window at that storm. My sister will be suspicious. Gosh, your lips look delicious. My brother will be there at the door. Waves upon tropical shore. My maiden aunt's mind is vicious. Oh, your lips look delicious. Well, maybe just a cigarette. Never such a blizzard before I've got to get home If you freeze out there Say, lend me your coat It's up to your knees out there You've really been great I'll thrill when you touch my head Don't you see How can you do this thing to me? There's bound to be talk Tomorrow. Think of my lifelong sound. At least there will be plenty in flowers. If you caught pneumonia and I, I really can't stay. Get rid of that holdout. How about it's cold? 